today we're, we're covering, uh, we're continuing to cover, I should say, Nehemiah chapter 3, where we're talking about the gates. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to have Skip read 32 verses and try to pronounce these names on the spot, because if I didn't have a week to practice these names, man, I'd, I'd be like, you know, a deer in headlights up here. How am I supposed to pronounce that, you know? Um, so uh, what we're talking about does have to do with gates today, and that's why I selected uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 as our text to read today. Uh, because it does tie in uh, with what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about gates. And I'm sorry for those of you who uh, don't have kids' church to go to, but I have a feeling that when we get to the dung gate, you guys are going to enjoy that. You you kids are going to enjoy hearing about that one, what Nehemiah has to say about that one. Um, Okay, so I wanted to start out today by asking you guys, putting the ball in your courts, what do you have that you maybe wear or you have around the house that reminds you of God? Anything? A cross. Okay, a cross. You have a cross like hanging in your house? Yeah, hanging up on the wall. Okay, good. That, that's, a, that's a pretty common one. Anybody have anything different? Picture. A picture of like Jesus or of a scene from the Bible? Yeah, I've been living out for 43 years. I've had it. Okay, that, yeah, that's, that's another common one. I've, I've got a picture uh, of Jesus healing the blind man. In my uh, in my front room, which is man my favorite picture of all time. Uh, another one. We have a church. Yeah. No, th- no, that's good. A church should serve as a reminder, not just to us, but to everybody uh, who's driving by or walking by or whatever. Right. That's that's good. Joan. Bible verses, yeah, like we have, uh, you know, stuff hanging around here, too, and people hang that kind of stuff up um, around their houses as well. That's great, you know, that, that's good to have things that remind us of, uh, of biblical truths. Um, you know, one of the, you know, some of the things that people will commonly do, you know, they'll put things up on the walls, or they'll, they'll get a piece of jewelry or something, something that reminds them of, uh, you know, God's presence or his faithfulness or, you know, a favorite story that you have in the Bible that you, you can personally relate to maybe or whatever. Some people will put, uh, you know, the, the fish emblem, you know, the little sticker thingy on the back of their car. Uh, and by the way, if you do that, make sure that you're not driving like a maniac. Make sure that you're not driving like you're drunk. Um, I, I hate it when I see that. I get behind somebody who is, dr- you know, weaving in and out of lanes and they've got their fish on the back. I'm thinking, oh man, please. Yeah, <laughs> maybe they're just fishermen up here in the Pacific Northwest. Wouldn't be uh, too much of a surprise. Um, well, you know, not long after I uh, came back to Jesus, I made a recommitment to Jesus in 2003, uh, I also had it heavy on my heart to have some kind of visual reminder, a visual reminder of God's greatness, of, of his faithfulness, of his, of his great love for me. Uh, and I wanted it to be a reminder of what he had done for me, but I also wanted it to be a message uh, to people who saw it, and so I ended up getting a tattoo around my right bicep of a padlocked chain that's being broken apart, uh, which is an image which, of course, represents freedom, being freed uh, from something, and it's, uh, the tattoo is something that I've been asked quite a bit about, uh, and it's led to actually a lot of conversations about Jesus. Now, I know uh, that some people kind of freak out when they find out, oh, he's a pastor and he's got a tattoo. And they'll, they'll say, you know, doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to have a tattoo? Uh, and I say, well, not exactly. First of all, it's found in the law of Moses. And we're not under the law of Moses. And secondly, what it says, what the law of Moses says, is that uh, people are forbidden from being marked for the dead. 
But praise the Lord, I'm not marked for the dead. I'm marked for the living. I'm marked for the one who rose from the grave and defeated death. And it's a reminder to me, it'll always be a reminder to me, of what Jesus did for me. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm like most people in that I want visual reminders. I like visual reminders and visual messages. And what we're going to see today as we continue our study of the third chapter of Nehemiah is that if you were to look around the city of Jerusalem as it's being rebuilt, there are a lot of reminders, visual reminders, that they are surrounded by as well. And Nehemiah's third chapter actually draws our attention consistently to these visual reminders. Uh, And these reminders are found in the many gates. There are 10 of them that are mentioned around the city of Jerusalem. And believe me, what we're going to see today is that these gates have deep, rich significance, even uh, for us today. Now, if you remember, when, when you're reading the Bible, if you remember that when there's repetition, it means that the author wants you to notice something. If there's repetition, the author wants you to notice something. If there's repetition, the author wants you to notice something. You'll, uh, you'll find yet another great aspect of this chapter. Last week, we looked at the many people who were busy building uh, the wall, and we talked about the significance uh, and some of the principles that were demonstrated in this chapter. And by the way, did you notice who wasn't mentioned as working on the wall? Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't mentioned anywhere in the third chapter as having worked on the wall, but he was, uh, we know that he was as busy as anyone running back and forth, you know, making sure that people were doing their jobs and, you know, who knows, maybe even working alongside them, building this huge wall. But he doesn't give himself even a mention in the third chapter. He doesn't say, I was busy doing this and that. Nothing. Now, contrast that humble spirit with the spirit of somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered and plundered Jerusalem about 140 years before this, who declared in a moment of pridefulness, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That's from Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And if you're familiar with that story, you know that immediately after he says that, God says, that's it. You're done. I'm taking the the power that you have, the influence that you have, the position that you have away from you because he had taken all the credit and the glory for himself instead of giving it to God. And Nehemiah gave credit to others uh, in the third chapter, but when all was said and done, he ultimately gave all credit and glory to God. We'll see in chapter 6, verse 16, that he'll declare, this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And by the way, that's how all work uh, for God's kingdom is accomplished. That's the attitude you know, that for, for myself that I have tried to, uh, to assume as fully as possible since I started the podcasts. You know, I realized that in the big picture, I, I'm just like this little speck of dust on this huge beach, uh, and that there are pastors and preachers and podcasters out there who are a lot more interesting to listen to than, than I am. Uh, so, so why do people even listen to me? You know, what, how, did, how did that happen? I honestly have no response other than to say that it's being accomplished with the help of God. It's God. I have no other explanation, uh, you know, for for why it would be successful. What we do for God must be accomplished with his help. We can't do it on our own. It's not designed to be something that we do on our own. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we read that we're God's workmanship created for good works in Christ, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. 
He prepared it beforehand for us to walk in. He's helping us. He's setting the course, and he's planning each step that we take. I mean, you think you can do anything good for God without his help, without him uh, preparing it beforehand? It can't be done. It can't be done. So let's take a closer look at some of the good works that these people did with God's help in Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, like I said, there are 10 gates that are mentioned. If you have your Bible with you, uh, you might also want to have a pencil and just circle the word gate every time we come to it. Um, before we get started, remember that this story is about restoring things. The book of Nehemiah is a, is a story of restoration, restoring things to the way God intended them to be. And so while this is a literal account, this really literally happened, we should also recognize that there is a degree of symbolism often in the text. Uh, the first thing that we should remember when we're reading the Bible is that Scripture must interpret Scripture. And so as we look through the, the chapter, look through this chapter at the gates and the symbolism of the gates, we're able to clearly understand what the gates symbolize because the, the symbolism is expounded upon elsewhere in Scripture. And so we can correctly identify what they symbolize because the meaning is stated explicitly elsewhere. Now, if we look at the first gate in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, the first gate we find is called the sheep gate. Now, what is the sheep gate? The sheep gate is the gate that uh, the sheep came in through, into the temple area. It held the, the sheep back. And, of course, we know that sheep are symbolic in Scripture of sacrifice. Nobody was ever really forgiven because they, you know, killed a sheep. It was because of the symbolism in the sheep, giving uh, one's best to God. That's what, uh, that's what brought forgiveness. So sheep are symbolic of sacrifice in the Bible. And that's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's from John chapter 1, verse 29. And so what we see here as we're reading through Nehemiah chapter 3 is that the restoration of the sheep gate is the first step in the rebuilding of this, uh, of this project, this enormous project of restoration. And when we see this in light of all the other teachings in the Bible about sheep and sacrifice and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, we need to understand that it represents the fact that the cross is where we all must begin our walk as God's children because the cross is where you find the ultimate sacrifice uh, in, in Scripture, in, in all of history. You cannot come to Jesus any other way other than sacrifice. You cannot come to God any other way than sacrifice. That means there's sacrifice on our behalf. Christians are supposed to put to death what are called the desires of the flesh. The, the Christian life requires the death of self, surrendering it all, all that you have, all that you are to Jesus. And there is no other way to come to him. And that means that you have to put to death any desire that would prevent you from faithfully following him. Anything that he hates, you don't want to do. Anything that he hates, you want to hate it too. What he loves, you want to love it too. That means we're putting to death the desires of the flesh, day in and day out. It means ridding ourselves of anything and everything that we love more than Jesus. It means ridding ourselves of anything that we love more than Jesus, trading our value system for his so that we're valuing what he values. And that's why Paul wrote, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's from Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. So when you keep this principle of sacrifice, 
Understanding that Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice, was the ultimate sacrifice, but also that we have to make sacrifices in order to follow him. If we keep this principle at the center of our walk, man, you will grow in your spiritual walk like you would not believe. And it, it requires you know, some pretty intense, pretty incredible, sold-out obedience to Jesus, but that's what the cost of following him is. Sold-out obedience. And I'm here to say... Man, it is well worth the cost. And so the message of the sheep gate, the sheep gate, uh, its, its symbolism is that the person who lives by their own rules and refuses to be obedient to Jesus has a sheep gate that needs to be repaired. Now, if we, if we take a quick peek at John chapter 5, verse 2, we see that the sick and the diseased in Jesus' day used to hang out uh, near the sheep gate at the pool of Bethesda, hoping to be healed. Now, is there a reason that this pool happened to be by the sheep gate? I would say absolutely, because the sheep gate represents sacrifice, and because the ultimate sacrifice was made at the cross, and it's at the cross that true healing takes place. I'm not talking about physical healing necessarily. Sometimes God will heal, sometimes he isn't. He's the one who's all-knowing. He's the one who's all-powerful. He's the one who's sovereign. And so the decision is really up to, uh, up to him. It's his prerogative. But Isaiah, in prophesying of the crucifixion of Christ, wrote that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So how are we healed at the cross? Well, we were spiritually dead. And it's at the cross that we received life. Spiritual CPR. And by the way, that's way better than physical healing because physical healing might last a season, but all of us are going to die. But eternal life is never lost. So obviously we see that there is a ton of uh, really significant symbolism in the sheep gate. Uh, so let's move on to the next mention of a gate, and we find that in verse 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 3, uh, where we see a mention of the fish gate. And it was called the fish gate because it was the gate through which the fishermen brought their fish into the city. Fishing in the Bible, by the way, is symbolic of your testimony. It's symbolic of your witness. Uh, and that's why God said of the consequence for Israel's unfaithfulness in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2, he said, Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. What's he saying? You've lost your witness. And so the fish dying and stinking is symbolic of their witness dying and their witness stinking. They lost their witness. Uh, that's also why Jesus said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. So this is just a faithful acknowledgement of the fact that you belong to Jesus. The fish gate reminds us that we belong to Jesus and it should uh, be seen and heard by those who are around us in our actions and by our, our words. Our testimony should be strong. It's meant to be strong. I mean, do people see the difference that Jesus makes in your life? Do they see your hope shining through in a dismal situation do they see that? Or would it be fair to classify you as a closet Christian or a faith hoarder? Do you keep it to yourself? Can people see the difference? See, this is the question of uh, the issue of testimony and witness, being able to notice if or when the world can't tell the difference between themselves and us. 
it's because there's a fish gate that needs to be repaired. The fish gate represents a solid witness. Third, look down to verse 6. Here we come across what's called the old gate. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, the Lord declares, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Man, that is just a principle that applies so much in our day and age when there's so much advancement in, uh, you know, in, in uh, technology and also in things like archaeology and uh, so on and so forth. Information. You know, this is the age of information. But this is an instruction that even despite or in light or in spite of whatever this information that, that's coming our way, uh, stay the course. Stay the course on the ancient paths, the paths that were, that were laid before you, rather than trying to find your own way. And I love, if you notice here, Nehemiah tells us that the gate was repaired or, you know, depending on what your translation is, uh, strengthened, but it didn't need to be completely rebuilt. And there is rich symbolism in the fact that the old gate, the reminder to stay on the ancient paths where the good way is, withstood the Babylonian invasion 140 years prior. That's what separates Christianity from these counterfeit faiths that are out there, which offer, maybe they'll they'll offer you wealth. Uh, Maybe they'll offer you a guaranteed healing or or prosperity or, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, maybe they'll offer you something like a universe of your own to be God over someday with the promise, oh, God used to be a person, Uh, you too can be like God. Who does that sound like? Just saying. You know, a few years ago, um, the big thing on the market, if you were to walk into a Christian bookstore, it wouldn't be too big of a surprise to find all of these books on Bible codes. Anybody remember those books on Bible codes? I mean, there were scores of them, all of these, all these books uh, where people were basically claiming to find new truths in Scripture, uh, and the way that they did it was you know, basically applying technology. Uh, you know, they they plug the, the the Hebrew or the Greek into a computer program, and it would go you know every three or four letters and find you know uh, you know some kind of pattern within the whole scripture. And apparently, this was supposed to be new uh, information. But the gate, the old gate, reminds us that the wisdom of Scripture is far better and more desirable than the newest flash in the pan. So when someone comes along and uh, you know, does something like denying the death and resurrection of Jesus or denies the fallen nature of man. Uh, boy, you see that all over TV. Uh, you're good. Listen to your heart. Denying the fallen nature of man. Maybe they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And that is saying either there are, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same person or uh, there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or whatever, uh, whatever you know, way they deny it. Uh, or maybe they affirm another testament, an additional testament, something in addition to the Bible, whether that is something like the Apocrypha or uh, the Book of Mormon. The old gate is a reminder to remain stable and grounded in the old paths which those who have come and gone also walked, uh, walked on. If you look down at verse 13, we see the valley gate. Now, in, in Scripture, this is a pretty obvious one. This one, it doesn't take a whole lot of figuring out to get to. The valley gate represents trials and tribulations. Uh, valleys always represent trials and tribulations in Scripture, and James reminds us to consider it all joy 
when we encounter various trials because they serve to rid our lives of the junk that we carry with us. They refine us and they give us perspective. Maybe most importantly, valleys in life humble us. They make us humble. You know, the, the, the world applauds selfish arrogance, self-promotion, but God exalts the humble, and that's what this gate reminds us of, to be humbled, to go through the valleys, to walk through, follow the Lord through the valleys, just like in Psalm 23. Where does the Lord lead him? Through the valleys. He goes through the valleys, and that's okay. If it wasn't for the valleys, we wouldn't appreciate uh, the mountain peaks, right? Have you had trials in your life? You think there are going to be more coming? There are valleys in life. Yes, there are valleys in life. But take heart and remember that God uses our trials to grow us and to draw us closer to Him. Uh, I mean, you and I both know that when times are good, it's really easy to be thankful for all the things that we have. Oh boy, life is so good. But then we also know that times aren't always good. We also know that there are going to be challenges and difficulties in life. And in those seasons, it's not so easy to be thankful for what we're going through. Man, how often is it just your automatic response to be thankful that you're going through a valley? No, that, that's hard. That's difficult to be thankful for. But, you know, sometimes the wisest thing that we can do is pray for perspective, to see God's hand at work when we feel like Jesus is sleeping in the middle of the storm. And here we are, we're going to die. Jesus, you're, you're sleeping in the boat. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's often in retrospect that we clearly see exactly what God was doing when he led us through a storm or through a valley. Remember that we all need a valley gate because we all need to be refined by God, by life's valleys. It's no coincidence that the valley gate is followed by the dung gate. Uh, it's, it's also called the refuse gate. Uh, I think translators are trying to uh, tone it down a little bit by referring to it as refuse. Uh, but if you're reading the ESV, the English Standard Version, it is, uh, it's, they, they refer to it as the dung gate. It is the dung gate. Um, that's, what, that's also how the King James uh, renders it. Now, we all know what dung is, right? Um, without being too crude or, or obnoxious, I'll just say, it's your body's waste, right? Everybody knows uh, what dung is. It, it's your body's garbage. Uh, this was the gate through which one would have to travel to dispose of all kinds of garbage, and you know, all, all kinds of garbage in Jerusalem. And since dung is an impure, unclean substance, God mandated that it needed to be disposed of by burning it outside the gates of Jerusalem. And Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, we read God commanding that, quote, the flesh of the bull and its hide and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. How symbolic that the dung is part of a sin offering. And so thus this gate represents a regular elimination of junk from your life, the proverbial excrement. Notice that this was part of the sin offering. And so with this principle in mind, James wrote, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's from James chapter 4, verse 8. The point being, if you're holding on to the junk and the good, you're double-minded. You're living two lives. And so get rid of the junk. Get rid of the junk. And this is often... 
a painful process, a difficult process. But listen, if you don't eliminate the junk in your life, if you don't eliminate the junk in your life, you know what that makes you? It makes you spiritually constipated, to put it mildly. The dung gate reminds us to consciously and intentionally and regularly eliminate waste from our lives. Now, what constitutes waste? Uh, Well, basically, it's all of the things uh, in our lives which prevent us from becoming more like Jesus. It's the things that he hates. It's the disgusting things. It's sin, things that impede our walk with Jesus. And so we need to understand that if we don't, uh, you know, correct ourselves, judge ourselves by eliminating the waste from our lives, God will judge us, which brings us to what is perhaps the most disgusting and graphic image in the entire Bible. When God was judging Israel for her unfaithfulness, for falling away from God over and over and over and over again, continually being unfaithful to him, he issued this judgment in Malachi chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Did you guys know that the Bible said anything that disgusting? Is that kind of a gross picture? I'm glad it's in the Bible. I didn't have to like, make this illustration up on my own. God gave it to us in his word. Now, keep in mind, uh, you know, if you're reading the NASB, it'll say refuse, uh, that God will spread refuse on it. It's, it's the same picture. You're having dung. Uh, these people are saying they're, that they're going to have dung um, in their faces. And I have a feeling that when the translators used refuse, man, they're, they're just trying to tone something down because this is kind of a disgusting image. But this is a demonstration of God's sovereign right as the creator of all things to use whatever means necessary he chooses in his sovereignty to show us how disgusted he is with sin. This is basically a picture of God saying, this is what you love more than me? Let me give you some more of it. Let me give you more of it than you can tolerate. And I'm kind of reminded of Romans chapter 1 where, uh, where God's talking about, or where Paul's talking about how God gives somebody over to their sin. You want this? Here, take some more of it. Take some more of it. This is what you love, love more than me? You can have it. Listen, as, as disgusted as you might be, as revolted as you might feel, when you think of the, the imagery in this passage, you know, the, the idea of having excrement smeared all over somebody's face, part of the whole point of this is to say that God is more disgusted by sin than we are with what's going on here, than what's being described here. If you can wrap your mind around that, that God is more disgusted with our sin than we are with the idea of having dung smeared on our faces, you get an understanding of the fact that God really hates sin. He's, he's disgusted by sin. And so the message here is pretty simple and straightforward. Get rid of the waste in your life. Get rid of the proverbial excrement in your life while you can, because if you don't, it might just come back on you. I wanted to say something about how it might blow up in your face, but I, I, I didn't want to go there. Um, but look at what Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Now, if you knew Greek, guess what that word rubbish literally refers to? 
dung. It, it refers to, uh, yeah, to excrement. It refers to waste. So in comparison to the incredible value of knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, Paul's saying that everything else, anything that doesn't enhance or encourage your walk with Jesus is rubbish. It's waste. It's dung. And so the things that we love more than we love God are like excrement in comparison to him. And some of us need big dung gates in our lives. Some of us need little ones. But the point is to remember that we all have waste to rid ourselves of regularly. Uh, the sixth gate that we come to is the fountain gate. And again, there's, there's significance in the order that these gates are presented in. Uh, the fountain gate, you know, a fountain represents water as a source of life and nourishment. And this should remind us of Jesus' words in John chapter 7, verse 38, where he said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So you get this picture of a fountain rising up in somebody and overflowing in their lives. And of course, John clarifies for us immediately after this, saying, you know, this is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is referring to here, who strengthens and guides and sustains us. We also get the imagery of God being the fountain uh, of life from Psalm chapter 36, verse 9, where the psalmist refers to God as the fountain of life. Now again, I, I would say, look at the, look at the order that these are per, um, provided uh, or listed in. Uh, this comes immediately after the dung gate. Let me ask you, if, if, especially parents, you know, those of you who are parents and you've cleaned up messes after your kids when they're small, you know what I'm talking about, right around the diaper age, what do you need to clean up a bunch of excrement? Water. Flowing water. You need flowing water to clean it up. The gospel is not that you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. The gospel is that you come to God and he will work in you and through you and with you to clean out the waste as flowing water would wash away a bunch of excrement, a bunch of junk. That is the gospel. The gospel is that you come to God and he'll work in you and through you, but it must be done and can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the flowing river of life. The seventh gate that we come to is the water gate. Uh, look down at verse 26. Here we find the water gate. Now throughout Scripture, water is viewed in at least one of three ways. Excuse me, one of uh, three ways. First of all, it's a force that only God is capable of controlling and managing. That's kind of one of the images that we find in Scripture. It's also seen as a source of life, and it's also seen as a cleansing agent. If you know, the, you know what, what's said in the Levitical law, you know, about going and cleansing yourself in the water. Does water really cleanse somebody? No, but it's symbolic of being cleansed. But water also represents, in Scripture, the Word of God. Consider the first psalm. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We read, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So where do you find God's law? You find it in his word. It's found in God's word. And so the psalmist says that if you're meditating on what you find in God's word, you're like a tree with this overabundant source 
of water. But notice that the water gate also did not need to be rebuilt or repaired. Nehemiah tells us uh, that repairs were made up to the water gate, but the water gate itself was still standing. What a great reminder that the Word of God can withstand even the fiercest attacks. Jesus said, the Scripture cannot be broken in John chapter 10, verse 35. See, the Word of God never needs to be improved. It never needs to be fixed, and it never fails. That's what the water gate represents, and it reminds us of the fact uh, that we need to be like that tree that's firmly planted by studying and by reading, and most importantly, by applying God's Word to our lives. The eighth gate that we come to, look down at verse 28, is called the horse gate. The horse in the Bible always represents battle. It represents going to war. And when I think of battles that I might be engaged in, you know, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so this gate is a reminder, this horse gate is a reminder that being one of God's children, being a Christian, is not vacation. It's not a walk in the park. You're not on a luxury vacation, you know, on a tropical island. You are in the midst of a fierce battle with a real enemy. And that's not to say that there's no uh, joy or, or, or nothing to, to enjoy in the Christian walk. It's just saying, you know, uh, there's going to be battle. You are in the middle of battle. Whether you want to be or not, you are in the middle of a battle every single day. You have an army of spiritual enemies who would seek to undo you completely, who would seek to rip you to shreds, and every single one of us, every person who follows Jesus, is going to face spiritual battles. And so with that in mind, the horse gate reminds us to be prepared for battle, to take this seriously and to avoid this is important in war too, to avoid isolating ourselves from God or from the community of God's children because when we do, we're way, way, way more vulnerable. If you can find somebody who's off on their own and you're in the midst of war, boy, they're an easy target. But you find a bunch of them, not so easy. Next we come to the East Gate, verse 29. Surprise, surprise. It's located on the eastern wall of Jerusalem. Who'd have thunk, right? It's the wall. If you're on the outside, it's facing uh, the rising sun. And in Scripture, uh, there's actually a lot of symbolism in direction, particularly in east and west. Uh, movement toward the east in the Bible represents moving towards sin and moving toward rebellion when you're moving toward the east. If you were within the city walls of Jerusalem, the farthest you could go was the east gate. Before you leave the city. That's what prevents you from leaving the city going eastward. Uh, it would prevent you from going any further. When Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which way did they go? They went eastward. When Cain traveled off on his own, which way did he go? He went eastward. When they built the Tower of Babel, which way had they gone? They went eastward. East, moving east always represents moving towards sin and rebellion. Conversely, uh, Abraham journeyed westward. He went westward, and he forbid that his family return 
eastward. So the east gate, uh, it's also, by the way, the gate that Jesus came through when he came into Jerusalem. So now, now picture this for a second. Jesus is coming in through the east gate, which tells us that Jesus was traveling in which direction? West. Correct. Yeah, he's traveling westward. So when you're traveling westward, you're going toward God's will in Scripture. That's the symbolism. Uh, when you're traveling eastward, you're going away from God's will. And so the east gate represents what you and I need in our lives, especially when we are moving away from God. We need something to stop us from going any further, something to stop us from traveling eastward. It reminds us to turn back and to stop moving towards sinfulness and rebelliousness, turn back to God's will and his ways by turning around and going westward. Tenth, verse 31, we come to the inspection gate. Now, one of the ways that this word inspection uh, in Hebrew also gets translated is to refer to an appointed time or place. What's appointed to man? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And this, of course, is the ultimate inspection. It's an inspection of our entire lives. It's a reminder that we're going to stand before God someday. We're going to stand before the Lord someday, and we're going to have to give an account for everything that we are and everything that we've done and left undone. It's a reminder of this. And it's also the place where we will receive rewards for faithful service. If you have trusted in Jesus alone, his work on the cross alone to save you, then this is where you will get your reward. This, is not, this won't be a place of judgment in the sense of being condemnation because Romans chapter 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, this is a place of commendation, being commended, congratulated, rewarded. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, each will receive his own reward according to his labor. And this is where it takes place, at the inspection. This is what the inspection gate reminds us of, that someday we're going to have to give an account for everything that we've done with what God has given us. Now, there are ten gates and we've just reached the 10th one, but before we conclude, before we wrap things up here, there is one more reference to a gate in this chapter, and that is in verse 32. Nehemiah brings up the sheep gate once again. Now, we've already established that the sheep gate represents sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice was made on the cross, and that's where our journey, that's where our walk with Jesus must both begin and end. We have to understand that we can't live the life that God intended for us to live apart from this principle. He is the beginning and the end. You know, we all want to live, but if you want to truly live, you must first die. And of course, I'm not talking about dying physically. I mean that you must put the old self to death. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Do you want newness of life today? Then you have to put to death your sinful desires. 
the sinful desires of the flesh. When we line our values up with God's values and subject our lives to His will rather than our own, that's when we're able to experience the joy of having His blessings fill our hearts. You know, as you look at your life this morning, maybe you see a gate that's been torn down or needs to be repaired. And each one of these gates here in the third chapter of Nehemiah uh, represent as a reminder of the many areas of our lives that need to be maintained regularly or repaired. They need to be watched over, sometimes revisited. Because honestly, these are if you take all of these things together and you try to try to summarize in one sentence what this all represents, this is how to be the best Christian you possibly can be. But no that you don't have to do it alone. It has to be done with God's help, and it must be done in the context of a community because one person can't undertake an enormous project like this on their own. We need each other, and we belong to each other. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, and he's referring to himself. The ultimate gate is Jesus who is the gate of salvation. There is salvation by none other than Jesus. And so when he gives this picture, there's this picture of of humanity, all of humanity heading toward this gate of destruction, kind of going along with the dung gate. Remember God said in Malachi, you guys will be flushed out with it. So there's all this garbage going out, and humanity's following right along, and right next to it there's this other gate that very few people are going through. That's Jesus. Jesus is the gate of salvation. Praise the Lord. It's by His grace that we're able to find life instead of destruction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the rich and and deep symbolism in this chapter. Thank You for the many reminders. I pray, Lord, that it would just be... uh, something that reminds us of all the areas of our lives that can be vulnerable if not watched over. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, use us as a community to hold each other accountable, knowing that all of these gates are too much for one person to watch, but with many, it would be so much easier. We thank you, Lord, that you have put us into a community of uh, people who belong to you. And so we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in all in the midst of all of this. We thank you that we don't have to eliminate all the waste by ourselves, but that you come in and you're willing to do it for us, with us. We thank you, God. You are a good God who loves us and who sent your son to die for us. Teach us to live for you in light of that. Thank This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation 
in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.